0: Hey, so Hindu listeners, we've got a special episode today. Um, I'm speaking today, this is Matt McDermott. I'm speaking today with HAF Managing Director, Samir Kalra and Executive Director, Suhag Shukla. And we are gonna talk about some revelations that have come out in the case of alleged discrimination taking place at the BAPS temple in Robbinsville, New Jersey, as well as how this connects with some of the, some of the ways that the Cisco case of again, alleged caste discrimination, Played out in California this past spring, so let's just jump right into it, Samir. What, what, what was the impetus for this, and uh, how do you want to start revealing this information for listeners? It's good.
1: Sure, thanks, Matt. Uh, so I think maybe we can just back up to just see how all of this started uh, back in 2021 there was a civil case uh, filed against the baps uh, temple or monday in robbinsville new jersey uh, for several serious allegations um, including forced labor human trafficking um, wage and theft violations uh, and several other allegations Um, this was also uh, accompanied by a criminal investigation federal investigation uh, by the department of justice um, and involved a an FBI raid on the premises of the temple. Um, and you can only imagine what a raid would uh, be involved in in the middle of the night. Um, and um, from there, no criminal charges have yet been filed in the case. But the civil case had continued to proceed since 2021. Um, now, notably, in that case, there was also allegations that those people that were forced um, into these, uh, the situation or trafficked um, were actually from scheduled schedule um, which is um, in India, a schedule of certain marginalized communities. Um, and so the basically the insinuation was that there was caste based discrimination that was underpinning all of this uh, in terms of what transpired allegedly transpired at the temple. Um, Again, we fast forward now to 2023, still no criminal charges have been filed in the case. Um, But what we do now know is that there was a statement filed in India in a Rajasthan uh, court. Uh, Rajasthan is a Western state in India, Northwestern state in India, where 12 uh, uh, workers, volunteer workers who had worked on the BAPS temple in Robbinsville, uh, New Jersey. Now, this is one of the largest Hindu temples, if not the largest. Uh, Hindu temple in the U S very well-respected organization for a lot of the charitable work that they do. Um, a lot of the um, the way they basically provide services to the broader community um, as well as just being a pillar within Hindu society um, in America and worldwide uh, more broadly. Um, and so these workers, 12 of them had actually recanted um, their earlier statements and said that they were coerced by the lawyer in the civil case, um, Swati, Swati Savant. Sorry, we got to edit that part. Uh, Swati Savant um, in into filing uh, those claims, um, and so that was a huge uh, revelation that just came out. Um, now the charges, sorry, the charges again have not been filed criminally, but the civil case is ongoing. We don't know what impact this is going to have on the case but it certainly shows a lot of um you know it certainly raises a lot of serious questions about the legitimacy of these claims um and the allegations and the way this was ho- all covered in the beginning um and maybe Suhag you can kind of talk a little bit about how the media covered this um and really kind of jumped to conclusions in a lot of their reporting and um so a lot of the really demeaning and stereotypical way that they covered this case and more broadly the hindu community in the u.s
2: uh absolutely samir i mean if there's a um type setting for let's publish a stereotype um the coverage around the baps case and and even to to a to the same extent um the case of alleged caste-based discrimination against cisco systems in california that kind of happened um maybe not around the same time, but it certainly was thrown together as this grand narrative of caste discrimination occurring from coast to coast, from New Jersey to California. But, um, you know, you have, first of all, the New York Times story hit on the same day as the raid. Uh, from what I understand, you know, I live here in Philadelphia. I'm not too far away from the from the mandir. Uh, and what I've learned on some of my, Trips there and talking to people on the ground is that this 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 rate occurred at the done probably you know an unprecedented scale. Every agency on the premises probably about four hundred federal agents is the number that I've heard uh, and um, came in guns drawn. So you know, obviously, the federal government was convinced even prior to the raid, that they were coming into something. And, uh, you know, if you look at some of the media coverage and um, try to comport what you see written in the media, uh, in the media, especially the New York Times or or some of the subsequent papers, and then when you go there, um, there are definite gaps in the story. And so first and foremost is that all of these workers are, uh, you know, they're supposed to be the victims of human trafficking and um, they are all supposed to be low caste, allegedly. Um, did they talk to, did the federal government talk to all of these people? Were they looking at certificates? None of that information is readily available to us. Uh, ultimately, when you look at the civil suit, uh, there's only six named plaintiffs. So, but the media coverage talks about over 200 So which is it? Now you have this uh, statement in which workers in India under an affidavit. So under uh, under oath have said that we were coerced by the attorney that filed the civil suit. And that's 12 of them. So we have a lot of numbers kind of flying around without really any um, fact checking on um, how many how many workers actually were there. How many workers left with the government? I've read some of the stories talk about 90. Um, Others have have listed higher numbers, Uh, but certainly the stereotype of them all being uh, Hindu um, and then being low caste. So if you want to typeset into the stereotype of Hinduism being an oppressive uh, religion that Uh, has a social and religious hierarchy in which oppression or untouchability or abuse is mandated through, you know, social custom and legal mandate. And I'm, you know, using these words specifically because actually that's what the state of California has described Hinduism to be in its suit against Cisco. But that's exactly the kind of storytelling that we get from the front page of the New York Times. One, how does the story hit on the very same day as a raid if there isn't some sort of coordination happening between the two um, with the government and the media. And then, uh, you know, you find the same type of uh, descriptions of Hinduism being this foreign religion, you know, it, it would not be a story if Modi was not brought into the picture. And so you also have kind of hints of dual loyalty Uh, where BAPS, which of course has, uh, it's an international religious organization, but we're talking about a temple here in the United States, what it has to do with Prime Minister Narendra Modi in India and a raid here happening in New Jersey, we don't know, but it's, you know, the same sort of um, uh, connect the dots, uh, connecting to what, I don't quite know, but, you know, just the stereotype, I suppose, But that's kind of how this story came to us. I think it was a matter of shock uh, that, um, you know, not only were the people who were undergoing this raid uh, shocked, but the community across the country, the Hindu American community was equally shocked that, you know, what is going on.
0: So. I have one question just for clarification for people on what these workers did, but one point that I recall specifically in the aftermath of the original reporting on it was that there was some New Jersey, I believe it was New Jersey paper or online news outlet describing this as the Temple of Doom, straight out of Indiana Jones. So I'm picturing Mm -hmm. it's just not a good scene and I'll just leave it there. That, that wasn't in the New York Times, which it seems to have been tipped off or within got, got word that this was going on, but other people are describing it in ways that were just patently ridiculous. But,
2: well, you know so, what, just real quick, Matt, yeah. on that, I, I, I just opened up, I just did BAPS raid and, um, you know, pulled up the first story, um, that, that came uh, in the top five and, and here's, you know, just in terms of other types of stereotypes, um, here's one from the Daily Caller. <laughs> um, I won't talk uh, about the credibility of it, but uh, they were allegedly forbidden from speaking to visitors and religious yeah. volunteers and were given food with insignificant nutritional value, like lentils and potatoes. Um <laughs>
0: Like lentils and potatoes. It's awesome. you know, Sounds pretty that
1: good is, to me. Is, That's like my regular diet.
0: Apparently, Daily Caller doesn't like vegetarian diets, nor the I nutrition of them. Um, <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. Um, but w- w- the question I really had just to paint the picture, because our listeners are from all around the world. What sort of work were these people doing? They were on R1 visas. What what sort of work are you allowed to do with that? Is that skilled labor? Is that just sort of general volunteer labor that many religions would do? You go on, you know, so on some sort of religious, it's not a pilgrimage, but working mission to help out someplace, but you're right. not necessarily skilled. Were these workers skilled, unskilled, somewhere in between?
2: Uh, you know, we, we, again, we don't have the details of every single worker, right? But what we do know is that the R1 visa, the religious worker visa program is one that we at HAF have advocated for because in the absence of having any institutions that uh, that train religious workers here in the United States, we as a community are dependent on the ability uh, to bring people from India who have the requisite training to meet our religious needs. Now, what type of work might that entail? It runs the gamut. And just to be clear, the R1 visa is not something that just Hindus use. Um, in fact, one of the uh, religious communities that we've partnered with um, over the years is the Catholic community because the Catholic community apparently has a shortage of priests. And so they depend on the ability to have uh, you know people who have been ordained um, in Africa, in South America, to come and uh, meet the needs of, of their denominations. So in the Hindu context, you have a wide variety of workers that might um, be able to utilize the R1 visa. You have um, acharyas, you have pujaris, you have um, so you know people who are going to maybe give spiritual or religious lectures. You have people who might be ritual specialists. You might have, um, you know, uh, in this case, in the in the case of a temple, um, you might actually have religious architects, um, which is a, you know, ancient form of architecture that is quite complex. um, And these skills would include having to know uh, vastu or, you know, Hindu, um, Hindu architectural guidelines uh, in terms of not just physical but energetic planes and so the people who come oftentimes have uh you know years and years of experience that's been passed down through oral traditions you also have people who might be sculptors sculptors who are um, engaged in not just doing the actual sculpting of marble for these very ornate temples but then they know exactly how they fit together So that's that's just kind of a a broad overview of the types of workers. And Samir, maybe you can talk a little bit about how the R1 visa might differ from other work visas in terms of compensation and and that sort of stuff.
1: Sure. Um, Before I get to that, though, I think, you know, one thing it's important to note is that in the complaint that was filed, um, they actually have a misunderstanding of what falls under the religious vocation and occupation of an R1 visa. Um, so basically the allegations are that these, um, you know, temple volunteer workers worked as manual laborers and we're not engaging in a religious vocation or occupation. Um, but under the R1 um, uh, category, there are a lot of things, many of which you just mentioned, hog that actually would qualify as religious vocation. And that was actually due to some of the work that you worked on personally as part of the Hindu American Foundation's um, work to get a broader definition of what qualifies as religious vocation under the R1 category, which includes stone sculpting, um, re- religious uh, architecture, etc. A lot of many of the things that are affiliated with non-Judeo-Christian religions. Um, and so that right there, they show that, you know, either they couldn't read what R1 category means, meaning the lawyers for um. You know, well, she's this,
2: apparently an immigration attorney, so yeah, maybe not um, a very. Or,
1: <laughs> yeah, or that they are intentionally um, redefining what these yeah. uh, volunteer workers were doing at the temple. So I think that's a really important point to note here.
2: Absolutely. Are there
0: are there any pay? I'm i happen to have the complaint open while we're recording this, and it says they their hourly pay rate came to approximately dollar $20. twenty per hour, which is obviously way below minimum wage, but. I also saw that these people were coming essentially as volunteers. So what's the connection between perhaps we're into the weeds on immigration law and visas here, but what's the connection between that visa and hourly pay rate? Is there anything? What's the how can people parse that when they're reading it?
2: You know, just uh, again, I, we, I don't know at least the details on on what they were paid, but just generally speaking on the R1, uh, you know, there are a lot of religious vocations that um cannot take pay and i'm not talking about in the hindu context but i'm talking about a broader context so monks for instance right so if you are going to sponsor a monk to come uh and uh you know just um be the uh resident acharya or something at a at a vedanta center for instance um room and board is oftentimes um you know th- that's what's traditional. So there's there is a great deal of flexibility in um in the in the law in terms of you know what you're supposed to pay in this particular uh on in this particular uh visa. Now so it would depend on you know how exactly they filed on what the requirement would be. Uh but again I think Samir's point is an important one that Either the attorney filing the civil case fundamentally does not understand how R1 visas work, um, or uh, this is actually more of a politically motivated um, hit job than anything else.
1: I think the other thing that is important to note here is that these particular volunteer workers had actually been working on a number of temples before. Um, so this is not a, you know, uh, an attempt to bring here and forced labor as a one time, you know, some kind of trafficking ring or anything like that. They had been working um, on BAPS munders in the past as well um, as volunteer workers. And this is very common within kind of the temple Uh, tradition is to have volunteer workers um, doing that work. So, you know, there's a lot of information that was not reported on here um, in the initial uh, complaint when the initial complaint came out and when there was a raid, et cetera, at the temple. And so I think it's important to right now with these revelations um, and with the recantment of the statement in the Rajasthan court, it's important to kind of, um, you know, put some facts back on the record here as well.
2: I'd also I'd also add that um, you know, not only were these workers who, you know, had several stints over the years and globally um on uh, different Mondays, uh, but um, you know, there was uh oh God, I completely lost track. Hold on. I was about to say something.
0: Yeah. That's yes. so Hindu listeners, we're we're recording this one off the cuff. We're <laughs>
2: Uh, Audio, hold on, everything. hold on! Uh, what we're, what we're it was it was out. an important point. Um, oh yes, okay. Here we go. Okay, cut that part out.
0: <laughs> uh, we're, we're, we're leaving it in. This, this one's raw, raw. <laughs> we're just going. One,
2: Anyways, what I was gonna it, it actually went back to uh, some of the media coverage, and that was this kind of um, imagery of people literally being kind of shackled is what would come to mind that they were held in these four quarters and, um, not allowed to leave, uh, you know, because if you're going to paint a story of human trafficking, then, you know, all the, all the set has to fit that, that narrative. And I've been to the temple and look, they have basically rows and rows of mobile homes. And my understanding is that it's not just the workers, um, who, who have, you know, that's where they stay. But even all of the and I think we need to make a distinction here. Look, the, the temple has hundreds of volunteers um, and these are not necessarily people coming from India, but hundreds of volunteers from across the country who give up a year or two or they take a sabbatical from work to come and volunteer for the temple. I was actually just there um, this past Saturday and um, the person that was kind of giving us a tour and and helping us kind of um, navigate our experience because they they have uh, the grand opening coming up in October, you know, she was a uh, an MBA who was working in pharma and uh, she took four months off from her job to volunteer with the Mandir. So, and then as we were looking out, there's a huge temple complex that's being built now and um, there were a lot of people who are just taking the summer off or have given a, a year or two and they're volunteering to actually build the temple. So, you know, everyone has hard hats on and fluorescent vests and and whatnot. So you have your volunteer workers. And I think that's one of the things that I did find confusing about the statement coming from India is that the workers Um, were kind of described as volunteer workers. My understanding is that they were the ones that were on the R1 visa. Um, So I think that calling them R1 workers would probably be a little bit more um, accurate, Uh, but, uh, but there are also volunteer workers. But this story of people being kind of like you know, you just, it just conjured up images of people being chained and people's cell phones, like not having access to cell phones. My understanding is, is that every worker there, if they have a cell phone, it's not turned in at any given point. Everyone has access to social media. Um, you know, in our community, WhatsApp, uh, is, is, is King. And so, um, you know, they had the opportunity and the ability to freely communicate with their family members. And as far as the story of, you know, having poor living quarters and whatever, um, now I haven't been in one of these mobile homes, but if the workers were in a mobile home um, that was of poor quality, that means that board of trustee members, other volunteer workers and guests are also in the same types of quarters. But from what I could see, these were like brand spanking new um, mobile homes that are there for people who are coming for long periods of time to volunteer for the temple or work for the temple, so even that, uh, and and then just one more piece I'll add is that I think it was the uh, New York Times um, in which you know these big, big, bad, scary security um, officers were kind of described, and um, even the security guards at the BAPS uh, complex. Um, I don't think I saw anyone under the age of maybe 60 as, as a security officer. Uh, they too are, are volunteers and maybe at best, um, they had a flashlight, uh, but you know, just if you go to the actual temple and look with your own eyes, and then actually I would ask people to bring the New York times article with them and read it while walking through the complex and you're going to find polar opposite descriptions of the same scene.
0: Before we move on to this going, it seems to me that something just isn't adding up at minimum. The case is far less severe than it was originally presented. What do you have any insight, either Samir or Suhaq, on what's coming next for this? It's been a couple of years now, literally. Um, what's going on? What, what impact will this affidavit coming from Rajasthan have?
1: you want to go first yeah that's a a good question i mean it's hard to know on the on the actual federal criminal side um because we don't you know nothing has actually been filed yet. no charges have been filed so we don't know how that's going to proceed at this point um and what impact this may or may not have it definitely weakens i think the case that they may have been trying to build um, you know if they were actively still doing that Um, but you know kind of as we saw in the cisco case there is i think a real penchant uh, by some of the activists that have were celebrating this case as they were celebrating the initial cisco filing um as you know a penchant for dismissing facts or not caring about facts um because it doesn't fit neatly into their political agendas i mean we saw the rampant misinformation um that was there in the cisco case when facts were available very easily in the public domain and both members of the media refused to use those facts or acknowledge those facts, as did the Civil Rights Department at that time, the Fair Employment and Housing um, or uh, whatever D- Department, of well, Department. Department of Fair Employment. Employment, Fair Employment housing, and Housing. Later D-F-E-H. D-F-E-H. Yes, yes, yes. And yes. Now, the the,
2: now the CRD, which yeah, is now the most the ironically That's named yeah. institution. Okay,
1: okay, okay. We,
0: we got all of us talking over each other, but there is something we probably should back up just to set the stage because... Uh, people's memories are short. What happened in Cisco? And then what happened this spring to change the course of this case?
2: Well, before before we move on to Cisco, I'll just um, give my hot take on on what might happen with uh, BAPS. Look, when you uh, expend that many resources of the government, I unfortunately, I have a feeling that there's going to be more of a Uh, emphasis or at least an eye on the government trying to save face here, as opposed to actually um, fact finding. And um, so, you know, will it be the, you know, the screaming headlines and those charges? I would have thought that two and a half years in, if there was something, they would have found it and the charges would have been made. Um, But we have nothing. And I believe the statute of limitations is a is five years. Uh, and if that's the case, they have another two and a half years to keep digging and digging. Or they know that there's nothing more to be dug and you drag your feet. And unfortunately, what we are, we're in the age of uh, I think, Matt, you called it we're in a post fact uh, era. And so the media story is is potentially going to be the last word on it. And, and I think that's, that's what we find now segueing to Cisco, the same sort of thing that we, we have a situation where we end up getting trial by media and um, and so, and the media um, is unfortunately has more of an activist mindset than it does an ethical mindset of actual fact finding. Um, Samir, maybe if you want to go into some of the, Actual facts of the case and um, and what happened with Cisco.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, uh, you know, I think last thing I'll say on the Robbinsville um, incident, unfortunate incident, is beyond just uh, dismissal of facts is that that case was used to demonize the entire Hindu American community and also Hinduism as a religious practice, and trying to again further this narrative that you know caste-based discrimination is inherent in Hinduism. That's why. This particular temple recruited, knowing intentionally knowing that people from you know scheduled caste communities in India are marginalized and you know have fewer protections. I mean, this is the whole narrative that was built up around this, uh, and so it has you know whatever happens in the case is is one thing, um, but I I think the damage that is these types of cases and this kind of um, you know rush to judgment and just deeming people guilty and deeming an entire community guilty of wrongdoing, I think has far reaching consequences that are not going to go away anytime soon. And we see how these, you know, uh, seemingly disparate, you know, cases are all kind of lumped together to create, you know, and weave together to create this long, large, you know, tale and narrative about Hindus and Hinduism, um, that is then basically fueling policy, Initiatives in a number of different states across the country, uh, most recently in California. Um, and this is just kind of fodder to support the justification and need to regulate Hindu Americans as some dangerous community and dangerous religion. Um, and so I think that's kind of the larger issue that is of, of deep concern beyond this uh, specific facts of this case. Um, but now to Cisco. So I think in Cisco, just to kind of you know, go back and resummarize what exactly happened very briefly. And I know as a lawyer, it's difficult to be brief, but I will try. Um, you know, in that case, there were allegations by the Department of Fair Employment and Housing that two individual defendants, as well as Cisco Systems, uh, engaged in caste based discrimination against a John Doe that worked at the company. Um, and the allegations surrounded Um, surrounded an alleged comment made by the defendants basically, you know, referring to John Doe's um, cast because he was on a reservations list or a list in India that, you know, people from marginalized communities are able to access um, uh, benefits um, through a kind of a reservation quota system in India. So allegedly made some comment about that. That and then also, um, you know, engaged in certain behavior that was then punishing the, uh, punishing John Doe, uh, for his, uh, caste based status. Um, and, you know, uh, basically retaliating against him and also kind of taking away opportunities from him, um, as well as creating a hostile work environment. Uh, but you know, what the reality was, was much different from that. First of all, the two, the allegations, or sorry, the case against the two named defendants, um, Sundar Ayer and Raman Kampala were actually dismissed um, by um, uh, by the uh, uh, civil rights department. And basically there was no factual basis. Um, and just to be clear, that case was not dismissed because there was a, a lack of a legal uh, remedy or avenue to file a caste-based discrimination case or to pr- uh, pr- uh, pursue a caste-based discrimination case, as some are, um, uh, you know, basically misinforming the public about. Um, but it was because the facts did not support the allegations in that case. Um, and the f- actual facts were that, um, you know, Sundar Iyer, one of the named defendants, was a former classmate of John Doe um, at... An IIT institute in India, um, uh, in India, and actually recruited John Doe to serve in this group within Cisco Systems that he was heading, um, and was given, you know, a, a very very generous uh, package of um, stocks, a combined kind of stock or equity um, in this group, as well as salary that I think a um, total amounted to like over a million dollars, um, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, and um, and also actually. The comment that he allegedly made referring to, um, you know, uh, John Doe's being on a a quote unquote reservation list was actually in the context of, hey, it doesn't matter if he's on that list. We should still give him an opportunity um, at the at in this group. Um, So, again, taken out of context. And then the allegations that, you know, this was a hierarchical group that, you know, basically that was all filled by upper caste Indians. And it was creating this, uh, you know, this caste system within Cisco where, you know, the lowest Dalits were not allowed to, um, you know, even access, you know, certain, um, I think even water fountains or certain, th- you know, certain amenities within the, um, within Cisco. I mean, there were kind of all kinds of outrageous um, claims that were made in this, in this case, um, when in fact... The actual um, yeah, one of the highest positions in the group was given to another Dalit. So first of all, you know, the, the CRD actually profiled an entire group and incorrectly profiled another group, an entire group you know, ignored the fact that, you know, a high position was given to another Dalit in the group and also was making allegations about the caste makeup of this group without having any knowledge about this. And who do they rely on as the experts? Of course, no other than uh, Equality Labs. Um, And, you know, for those that don't know yet about Equality Labs, it is a for-profit company, not a non-profit, a for-profit company um, that had created some caste Survey had created a cast survey a number of years ago that was based on uh, that was unscientifically done and not a representative sample um, to try to allege that caste based discrimination is extensive. Um, the case also tried to quote from, you know, extensively from UN data or data allegedly in India. Um, to then, you know, basically make allegations that this was happening in Cisco and then all more broadly in the US and in tech companies. So this, all this data was refused by the, uh, by the judge in the court, uh, and sorry, in, in, in the court, um, hearing the case, um, as being not um, you know, sufficient evidence. Um, and so I think there was a lot of misinformation there. Um, the latest being that it's the case is still in mediation between the CRD and Cisco, but the case was dismissed against the two named defendants. And I know now I have not been brief, so now I'll <laughs> so, chime in here. So,
0: so hold on, hold on. We let, let's just back up. There was a ton of information there and a lot of it for people that remember the reporting on it. It's all new information. Where Where did this information come from? And I know you said early on and we've said in public statements before that this information was publicly available. Where could people have found this? And it wasn't difficult to find all this out.
2: So I I can I can answer that having uh, been down the rabbit hole and back up again. Um, And I will say that that rabbit hole was not that deep. Um, It was available in the court filings. Um, and from the court filings, if, if, you know, you have a penchant for wanting to solve mysteries, there were enough hints in the public filings that you could go to things like LinkedIn and other publicly available information, um, to piece together, um, the, the story that wasn't being told now, um, as a result of, you know, pursuing my curiosity and reading through the complaint, the declarations and whatnot, all of a sudden again the realization that how the media has presented this and again a very unprecedented uh move by then the then you know California Department of Fair Employment and Housing now the civil rights department to put out a press release on the day that it filed a case you know that's that's unheard of there are thousands of cases being filed every day you don't read about them, but this thing just caught like wildfire. And, um, and so, you know, that that's a little bit unusual. And again, the story that it painted in this, uh, in this press release, it mirrored, um, some of the stereotypes, the false stereotypes that it perpetuated in its, uh, complaint, but, uh, you know, you can find all of this. So I ended up putting together a flow chart uh, of when things happened, what's publicly available. Literally, it was a story that would just need like conjunctions and, um, you know, punctuation marks to complete the, a, a story that had not been told. Every single reporter that reached out to us about the Cisco case was given access to this publicly available link, with the flowchart that connected all the dots, including with hyperlinks to the actual filings uh, made in the in in state court, and how many people covered the story? Zero. So you know, maybe maybe it wasn't hot news anymore. I I highly doubt that because I think we can. Um, Google, Cisco, and Cast, and literally get thousands of hits. So the idea that there was not, um, you know, that it wasn't newsworthy, I find hard to believe. Is it a matter of people not wanting to uh, correct the record once there's the potential that they might have gotten the wrong information? Maybe, um, you know, we kind of, that that's human nature. Uh, it's kind of the thing that I said that could happen with the the federal raid that once you've expended so much of your reputation and your resources into something, it's that much harder to pull back from it when you're wrong. So could that be at play potentially? Um, Or is it that there's only, you know, this activist media um, only wants to to tell one story about Indians and more specifically Hindus and Hinduism. And I think that all of that becomes very clear when you, I mean, I think both of these, um, the media coverage just in and of itself presents a, a great case study on uh, on kind of a, uh, I don't know, like groupthink or whatever you want to call it. And, and the problem, you know, it's, it's quite fundamental, the problem. When American school children are being taught about a pyramid, Uh, system or that all indian society can be reduced down to a pyramid where you have this evil conniving wily priesthood that is lording over all of the rest of indian society um, based on these groups that you know they're born into Um, you can see how that completely inaccurate stereotype of four or five classes um, and, and a hierarchy that's so simplified on the basis of ritual plur- of purity has devastating effects it ruined the lives of sundar iyer and ramana kompella i mean I-, I know that they had to essentially like go under you know stop all the social media if if they wanted to get employed somewhere All someone has to do is look up Cisco and their names, and they are going to be vilified by nearly every single news story out there. I I, I stand corrected. I'm going to correct myself. There were one or two stories um, in which the real story was brought out, but I wrote one of them. So I'm not going to count that. Uh, But. (laughs) (laughs)
1: So uh, uh, just to interject here, I mean, let's put the rat on the table. Those other explanations are not plausible or potential explanations. It's very clear that there was an intent, an intent and an agenda. Um, You know, whether that is because people have already, you know, been influenced by the group think or whatever the case may be, it doesn't matter. Nobody wanted to hear facts (laughs) or the truth. Because when it was presented to them, they chose not to accept that or to even present that in the story. They wanted to have a very clear cut, you know, bad guy. Or in this case, you know, Sundar Ayer and Ramana in the Cisco case, more particularly, but more broadly Hindus. I mean, this is, you know, and, and, you know, what they want to paint is anybody that is, you know, identifies as Hindu is an upper caste Hindu. Right. I mean, that's it's, it's simple. They want to, you know boil it down to as simple of a narrative as they can which is bad upper caste hindus wanting to discriminate and discriminating against you know oppressed You know, uh, Dalits who, you know, for the way these media articles are presenting it are not Hindus, um, which is actually, you know, incorrect. The vast majority of Dalits are Hindus and proud Hindus. And yes, is there discrimination that happens? Of course, there is. Does that need to be addressed? Of course it does. But to actually provide gray and to provide a balance reporting in the story. They had every opportunity to do that. I mean, God, we've all three of us have spent countless hours talking to media on this right. specific issue and the, you know, cast bill in California SB 403. And, you know, after that, what do you see in these articles? I mean, it's it's nonsense, right? So I'm not going to sugarcoat my words. You're far more diplomatic than I am. Um, but, uh, you know, I just I'm, I'm very jaded now. Um, And I would like to believe that all of this is not intentional, but you know i'm really not left with any other choice but to now understand that it is very intentional and agenda driven and uh you know the facts are inconvenient um in, in getting away yeah. in getting in the way you of
2: you fairness. you're right you're right i will you can mark this day i am going to admit that you are right and i was being a little bit maybe too generous but you know just one example i guess in terms of how clear uh, sometimes the agenda or the ideology or the presumptions come through, uh, as you said, Samir, you know, we've been working on this issue now for three years and have had countless media interactions. Um, if you recall that one reporter, I think it was from NPR, actually NPR did this twice to me where, uh, the first time, uh, they assigned a cast to me, um, and, I found that quite ironic when I called the reporter up and asked him that, you know, would you would you have presumed my gender? Because you did ask me what my preferred gender was, but you didn't ask me whether I identify by a particular cast. And now um, the second time this happened was that um, it was, again, an NPR reporter who uh, didn't ask me to my face during that interview whether I identified by a cast or not, but then went through the agency, the PR agency that had um, that that he had gotten to us through and asked them, When I responded to say that that was a racist question, uh, the news story ultimately said that, you know, Suhag Shukla refused to um, identify or or divulge her cast. So absolutely, um, to your point, Samir, Uh, there's a story that they want to tell and they just keep digging into it, uh, completely ignoring what the actual facts mean.
0: So that was WGBH, if we're going to name names, right?
2: Yes, 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 right. That's right.
0: And I believe it was an African-American reporter. It was. To add add complexity to...
2: I mean, to be fair, they did did change it uh, when I told them that, you know, I don't agree with the way that you're identifying me and they did change it, but I did get a screenshot of it. Uh, Just for posterity. (laughs) (laughs) The
0: the, the thing, another facet of this complex gem here, you can call this situation a gem, um, seems to me to be the fact that in the issue of caste, in the issue of discrimination based upon caste, the people screaming out loudest about this, about the need to have this legislated as a specific category which the situation in California and Cisco shows isn't required, as the Civil Rights Department brought its case under Ancestry, uh, thereby showing that we have sufficient protections, or at least they thought we did, is that the same people screaming loudest for this and the same reporters that have reported on this, not always in the most complex way, to be polite, are the same ones that if we go back 22 years, would have been saying we shouldn't be demonizing all Muslims for the acts of terrorism, for, for terrorism. Say that's unfair. We shouldn't be doing that. We should be talking about the specific acts. So it just, that always just comes back to me that we say things now in 2023 about Hindus in a generalized way that if you said them about other
2: communities,
0: you'd be called a bigot. It's yeah. not mince work. It,
2: it goes a little bit even further than that. Um you know, the the executive director of um, Equality Labs, I, I think it was during an interview with uh, with DIA TV, maybe, where she's like, look, if you're not discriminating, you don't need to worry about it. Now, that doesn't necessarily answer the question as to, is it okay to create laws yeah. that are going to ethnically Absolutely. Police profile, it, that, right? that, 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 that <laughs> over,
0: and that's the exact same argument that people were making around when exactly. about intrusions into civil liberties and all these things, which are which I I shared those. They were very there were intrusions into civil liberties that go on to this day in hindsight. Right. Uh, and and they were they were saying, Well, if you're not up to no good, you don't have to worry. It's just a it's it's a straw man argument that here the sides are flipped about who, who is proposing the intrusions into liberties.
2: Well, and, yeah. and I mean essentially it throws due process out the window. Um, When you make arguments like that, that, you know, that civil rights are not just providing individuals as citizens um, certain freedoms, but it's actually a curtailment on state power. Uh, So, (laughs) you know, we can't look at it as at just one side of the coin. You have to look at both. Sorry, Samir, go ahead.
1: Yeah, no, I was just going to actually mention to your point, Matt, you know, we were actually, you know, amongst the many organizations that were speaking out against those uh, violations of civil liberties post 9-11. And we were very uh, outspoken on policies that were uh, violating the rights of Muslim Americans. You know, unfortunately, in this case, despite the anti-immigrant xenophobic rhetoric that we've been subjected to, despite the you know, broad brush generalizations that we've been facing, that we are some kind of discriminatory religion and community. And despite the fact that our, you know, due process or equal protection rights are being violated through such policies and laws, we have been for the most part left out on an island and no community for the most part, you know, save some communities have come out to support us. And it's very disappointing. And, you know, I think, you know, unfortunate that you know, if you replace Hindu Americans or Indian Americans who were South Asian Americans with any other community in this situation, there would have been an uproar with this type of rhetoric that we are facing. And nobody wants to admit that, whether it's the media, policymakers and anybody else. And frankly, I'm getting tired of it. And as you can tell, I am going on a rant today because I am angry.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, we, we, I'll walk that back a little bit. We are starting to see some. Yeah. Uh, members of the jewish community organizations yes, and individuals yes. that are making the connection that are saying here's the community the jewish community in the world that has faced discrimination for literally central centuries and bona fide genocide in the form of the holocaust no doubt and they're finally going hey wait what's going on here towards hindus isn't acceptable right we were yeah. there
1: I think that is the exception, Matt, and absolutely, and they have been um, very supportive. But I mean, the same groups that we supported when they were facing as many Muslim American organizations are actually helping to perpetuate the same stereotypes right now that we're dealing with yes. as our broader Asian American organizations that quote unquote fight for civil liberties, and they don't even want to consider another perspective. I mean, South Asian Bar Association, the you know American Bar Association and all these other organizations are having events. Without actually even wanting to introduce another perspective on this issue or even consider that, hey, there may be some serious constitutional and civil rights issues at play. No, you know what? They want to pursue a narrative and they don't even want to consider that there may be other aspects of this, you know, that are um, that are, you know, below the surface that need to be brought to bear and other voices and perspectives that need to be heard. Very disappointing,
2: yeah, absolutely. I think the way that I'm starting to see things, um, especially in the legal arena amongst these bodies that look, we all know when you uh pass the bar exam and you get bar certified, you put your hand up and you say that you're going to uphold the highest law of the land, that you're going to uphold the constitution, U.S. Constitution, you're going to uphold the state constitution wherever you are, uh, to see these legal bodies uh, coming out and not actually they're, they're not even addressing or trying to counter the legal issues or the legal concerns that we've raised. Their response is trying to demonize those who are opposing it. So what's what we're starting to see, I think is that when you as a lawyer no longer see legal justice as a path to social justice, we are going to be in deep trouble as a society because when, if, and when you're in trouble where you've legitimately been discriminated against, or you're in a situation where you've been falsely accused of discrimination, when you have legal bodies that believe that they are above the law, you're, you're, you're talking about a society that's not going to be one that is going to be conducive to individual flourishing. So, you know, there's, there's these larger, I feel existential questions that this is raising, uh, when legal bodies like that South Asian bar association and others can't even, I mean, the, one of the first things we learn about in law school is as you're formulating your argument, you should already be thinking about your opposition's arguments and countering them from the get-go, but it requires you to counter them. Um, with the law. And that's not what we're seeing here. Um, we're seeing something that's just bizarre world, um, you know, and and there's not even an openness uh, to wanting to have open debate, uh, you know, whether it was um, most recently, it was the uh, NAPABA, which is, uh, I think, North American Pacific Island Asian Bar Association, something along that lines. Uh, reached out to them because members of ours made us aware of the fact that they were hosting a a discussion on SB 403, the bill that the state of California is considering that would add caste um, no longer as a standalone category, uh, but as a uh, clarification of ancestry. um, And it would still be the only clarifying word that is singularly associated with a particular ethnic minority, But they they hosted a conversation on this. We reached out to the president of NAPABA and also included um, the uh, I think the president of the ABA, the American Bar Association, saying, "Look, the the one of the foundational principles of the law is that you have to engage in point and counterpoint, and at the very least, um, you should allow your members to to hear the other side of this." Um, And we we were. Stonewalled, no response whatsoever. So I think that we as um, citizens of this country have to begin looking at these kind of larger issues. I, I would in highly encourage more people in our community to pursue law as a career. Um, but you know be be one of the good guys that actually see the Constitution as our North Star and and, and fight for fight for our civil rights.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it, it, we're not saying that you can't disagree with our point of view. Oh, yeah. What yeah. we're saying is that we should be invited to the table to at least have that dialogue. But, you know, I think I'm going to put another rat on the table. I think they're scared. I think they're scared because <laughs> we they have two rats on the table yeah, two now. Rats. We got a lot that, of rats how many on the rats table.
0: Do you have
1: in <laughs> Maybe we're in New York City here. Um <laughs> But I I think there's a there's a sense of fear almost. Right. I mean, they don't want to admit it, but I think they're scared of arguments that may actually challenge their underlying assumptions about these issues and they don't want to deal with it. And so what's the easier thing to do is just not invite people um, uh, to the table to have that discussion because their views may be different and maybe because they have arguments that you may not be able to rebut. Um, and so I think people are scared of debate and dialogue and being proven wrong. And so I think that's what it stems from. Um, and it's unfortunate that we're at this place today. Um, and I think it's a real sad commentary on the legal profession more broadly, where you see so many people just becoming activists and just, you know, having one viewpoint on an issue and anybody that has a different viewpoint is either you know, um, not, um, you know, is either marginalized, not included, or they're dismissed as being, you know, you fill in the details here, being a racist, being this, being that, being castist, whatever the case may be. Um, so I think, you know, it, it speaks broad, more broadly of what we're facing in American society today, but it is definitely an indictment on the legal profession.
2: I'll just, I'll so just, have, one last it, point I'll just make, yeah, it. if it's okay, is that um, the, When this first started, you know, I I remember a a deck that we had created to educate lawmakers. And we said, you know, adding caste as a category more harm than good. And, And I think that these activists, because they're driven actually by a hatred of Hindus and Hinduism, have lost sight of the fact that everything that they're doing is actually like a game of Russian roulette. Um, that they are imposing a kind of legal harm on all South Asians. So in the same way that, you know, we saw hate crimes post 9 11 where mistaken identity, um, or, you know, the, the stereotypes that were going around about Muslim Americans affected not just Muslim Americans, but everyone else who was perceived to be Muslim. What they're doing with SB 403. What the state, what they, and I'm going to say it, you know, they worked at, at what point they started working together. We don't know, but we know in the Cisco case that Equality Labs um, submitted a declaration, um, you know, in, in support of the state's case, as did Suraj Yangde. Um And, and, and we, I, I'm sure uh, some of the statistics in that, you know, um, self, uh, Self survey, which you know is is anything but scientific, will will pop up in in the case maybe in California in uh, dealing with BAPS as well. That the average HR professional doesn't know the difference. That's one thing. So you've essentially stigmatized all South Asians as somehow being some kind of legal liability because we just can't treat one another well. So that could impact in the hiring and firing of South Asians. It could um, affect our well-being and our ability to, um, you know, prosper in in our individual uh, capacities as workers or as students. But the other thing is, and and this is where I don't know if it's because the activists have more familiarity with the realities under the Indian legal system, but if there's anyone engaging in horrible castist rhetoric it's these activists in the way that they demonize so-called upper castes um uh you know upper caste hindus or you know their favorite punching bag the the brahmin and here's the here's the here's the end message on this that if SB403 passes actually even if it doesn't pass that sort of rhetoric in the workplace is casteism bottom line and you're violating the law. If caste is already protected under existing law, or if SB 403 comes about with this, it as a clarification, the fact is that you're likely creating a hostile work environment for um, other workers of Indian origin. So all in all, whether it's through uh, stigmatizing all of us, regardless of what kinds of backgrounds that people are from, or If you hold on to those identities, but you're an activist that has been a proponent of SB403, a lot of the rhetoric, a lot of the hateful social media posts, all would be fodder for uh, claims against those people.
0: I'm pausing there because that's a good place to stop. And we've been at it for over an hour. Um, I think I don't have a clock running, but I, I think that's where we're about at. So, Samir, um, in your briefest legal opinion or legal voice, any final words?
1: I think we are going to see a lot of this play out in the courts um, over the next uh, few years. Um, we do have a few cases that are ongoing, um, both in the Cisco case, a Section 1983 Civil Rights um claim against uh the crd as well as in the csu case where Hf is part of the legal team uh, representing two professors there so i think you know as should be the case instead of you know having these things put out through policies and laws ahead of time we should allow the courts to interpret you know existing categories and look at all of these issues um, we're going to see a lot of this played out in the courts over the next few years um it may take some time um, but I think that's the way it should be, um, as opposed to these issues being played out either in the media or in textbooks or in through policies, et cetera, specifically around the issue of caste, of course. Um, So I think, you know, in that sense, I do have some hope and that at least the court system will, you know, um, have, you know, bring some logic and bring some sanity to this uh, discussion and to these issues. Um, But we'll definitely, um, I think, see how. Uh, things progress uh, through the court system more so than anywhere else.
2: I think that should be the last word. I agree with everything Samir
1: said. (laughs) That's the second time you agree. I was was going to the second time today.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. And for that, the Hindu listeners will resume our normal schedule and format with, I believe, the next episode is with Isan Katir and we're talking about Dharmic Investing. And that might actually come out the
2: same day as this, if not a couple of days.
1: So thank you all for listening. Thank you. Thank you,
0: Namaste. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please take a minute and leave us a nice five-star review. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at hinduamerican.org slash donate. Thanks again for listening.